Today, we discuss the topic of a revolutionary new construct, DAOs, and how it can change investing for the better. Today's guest on Alco's Mainstream is Ian Lee, the co-founder of Syndicate. Ian combines a background in financial services with a prescient view on the future with what he's building now at Syndicate. Ian's been a serial founder. He's worked in the office of the Chief Global Innovation Officer at Deloitte. He's run the Lab Network and Acceleration Fund at City Ventures and was head of Bitcoin and Blockchain at City before co-founding IDEO's CoLab Venture Fund, where he led their crypto efforts. Most recently, he's founded a groundbreaking company, Syndicate, which is a decentralized investing protocol and social network that's creating the infrastructure for DAOs to run efficiently and effectively. Syndicate's creating the infrastructure and mechanisms for much more efficient, digitally native human coordination. DAOs have similar properties to corporations, but they are significantly faster and cheaper to set up and run because code governs the decisions and actions taken. It's hard to put in a short paragraph how profound the creation of Syndicate could be for the formation and governance of organizations and the ability for communities to invest. And Ian's background lends itself incredibly well to both understanding how things worked in Web 2 and financial services and how they can work better in a Web 3 world. Ian and I had a fascinating conversation about his desire to make investing more inclusive and impactful and how DAO structures can enable that. We discussed how Syndicate is doing to investing what YouTube did for film and media, how Web3 enables community ownership where Web2 didn't, and how investing will become more community-driven, how DAOs are a social financial technology coordinating social and financial capital seamlessly and natively on the internet, how DAOs are unlocking participation from all sorts of communities who historically haven't had access to investing, and how we're in the middle of a multi-generational shift of decentralization and democratization. Great conversation with Ian, really enjoyed it. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks so much for coming on, Ian. We're going mainstream. Ian, welcome to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Love it. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for coming on. I think we have a lot to talk about and what you're doing, DAOs, building DAOs, enabling people to build DAOs is really at the the forefront of what people are talking about in crypto. So just really excited to have you on the podcast to talk about that. But first, you have a fascinating background that really spans traditional finance, academia, fine art, and crypto. How did you end up here for all the people who are, are trying to wonder how you ended up in the world of DAOs? Do you want the five-minute version or the one-minute version? We can do the five-minute version. Let's hear it. Okay, yeah. When I was young, I was really good at math and art. I had no idea what to do with those two things. I applied to engineering schools and to art schools and Actually, my father, who's an engineer, said, don't be an engineer. And my father was my idol. I just went with that. And so I went to art schools. What I found pretty quickly was actually there are people that are much better at art than I am. So so once I realized that, I um, actually went a little bit back to my interest in math and studied a combination of software design as well as economics. What that led me to is the world of finance and the world of business. And so actually, I spent a decade post-college in the area of automotive and aerospace, mostly working in the um, Midwest of the United States, 
on things like how to build a helicopter in half the time when previously it would take like three years. I remember uh, very distinctly working on this one project at this helicopter company, which I won't name, where we were trying to make this helicopter in 600 days, not 1400 days. That was a really big deal. But I, I eventually realized during that project, I was there for over a year, that the drone market was starting to eat the aviation market. And once I saw that, I was like, wait a minute, why aren't we working on that? <laughs> figuring that out, not figuring out how to make this you know, horse two times faster. Why aren't we working on the car? When I realized that, I was like, I'm working on the wrong problems. I moved into technology initially in a research capacity, like looking at the impact of AI and other things on different industries. I did that for a couple of years. I ended up joining Citigroup's venture arm in 2014 in Palo Alto to look at fintech and invest in and work with fintech companies on behalf of the bank. It was at that time that I was exposed to Bitcoin. Back then, people in the banking sector, honestly, they didn't care about Bitcoin. I used to joke the fastest way to get fired at a bank is to work on Bitcoin. People basically told me, hey, go look at this thing because there's some smart developers and engineers that are building or trying to build on top of this thing. Just go look at it because no one cares about it and you're the new guy. So I read Satoshi's white paper, which is only 10 pages, and it caught this personal passion of mine for math that I had jettisoned so many years ago. And I was like, holy cow, this is so fun. And then after three days of sitting with it, I, I went from, holy cow, this is so fun to, holy shit, this is an open fintech stack is what I'm looking at here. And there wasn't even the word blockchain. Ethereum wasn't even a thing. And I was like, Bitcoin is more like Android is to software as Bitcoin is to financial services. When I realized that, I was like, I got to spend all my time on this because this is like the Kodak moment for the financial services industry. And so I was the crazy guy getting kicked out of boardrooms saying, we need to look at this. We need to invest in this to eventually getting invited back into boardrooms in 2015 saying, what is our strategy around this? I became the head of crypto and Bitcoin um, at the bank for those three years, leading all of and coordinating all of our global activities and, and initiatives and, and investments in the space. During that time, I'm now I'm accelerating a bit. We can talk about some of this, but in 2015, I helped IDEO, which is this global design company, start a crypto team in San Francisco, which I then joined full-time in 2017, created and spun out of that with that team, a venture capital fund focused on Web3 and crypto investments. And for the last four years have invested in and incubated over 80 startups in the crypto and Web3 space. And then, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, decided to incubate my own thing and spin out with it, which is this thing called Syndicate, which we'll go into. So what, when you were at City, got you really excited about the crypto space? And how did your traditional finance background port over to what you're doing today and help you think through how to re-architect finance? So this, this is actually a very personal thing for me, which is I am a descendant of, or you know, many generation descendant of immigrants, and I am a minority in the United States. I believe that one of the things that has given me the opportunities that I now am, am able to, I guess, actualize is that other people before me, whether it was directly my descendants or other people in communities outside of my own, 
have paved this path for people like me to, to, to now do what we can do. And I, I feel that it's my responsibility to do that same thing for other people in other communities around the world. With that context, which also plays in the syndicate, is when I looked at Bitcoin at Citigroup, when everyone was saying that this thing is a fraud, it's a scam, it's a Ponzi scheme. Instead, when you actually look into the technology, which more people are, thankfully, these days, is you see a fully open source fintech stack that anyone can build on or use. And there's two things about that that are really profound. Number one is when you have an open fintech stack or an open software stack like Android, new things can get built on that that cannot be built on a closed stack. And that's really fascinating and profound. We've seen that happen many times before, even the internet itself. If the internet was a closed system, if it was owned by IBM or Cisco, we would not have the internet that we have today. But the second more profound thing is that an open decentralized system and platform for financial services, in particular with Bitcoin, it enables services and functions or capabilities to be created that can serve the more than 2 billion people in the world that don't have a bank account and basic access to financial services. And when I joined Citigroup to work on fintech, that was what I wanted to do, which was how do we improve our world with all these people that can't get access to a basic bank account or a loan to lift themselves and their communities out of poverty and, and provide for a better family for themselves and, and future generations. Now, here's the issue is that that is not who banks serve, unfortunately, in the traditional financial system. Banks, which again, I won't name, are primarily designed to serve the richest and wealthiest people in the world. And that is the dilemma, but also it makes sense. That's their business model. That is why cryptos and, and Web3 is so important is because it actually starts from the bottom up. I'm a business management sort of nerd. If you think about the historical implications of like my favorite book of all time, The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen, this is a classic example of bottom-up disruptive innovation that ultimately eats everything above it, including banks. Now, it may take 100 years. I am practical. I'm a pragmatist. I'm not religious about this, but it is going to do that. It's inevitable, and people just need to understand the technology to, to realize that this is going to happen whether they like it or not. That, that's a fascinating point in the context of building outside of the confines of the system. When you think about crypto and this open finance or fintech stack that you're building, do you think that the people that it should be built for to start are those who are not really well served by banks? Yeah, classic innovators dilemma like from that book. One of the conclusions from the decades of research that Clayton Christensen did was when you're introducing a disruptive innovation in the market, you actually go for new markets or underserved markets rather than overserved markets. That's actually the main conclusion from that, which is a lot of people in the overserved markets, they initially look at a new disruption that serves a new market that is small but growing or an underserved market that is not profitable. And their immediate reaction as an incumbent who is sitting there generating tons of profits and lots of market share and stuff like that is their immediate reaction is, well, that market doesn't matter. And the reality is if you pick the right market, which is going to become 
the market in the future. That is how incumbents historically, time and time again, very consistently get disrupted. And that's actually like connecting all the way back to the helicopter company. The reason that I went into technology and innovation research was I was bothered by this question. Why is it that the most well-resourced, often most talented organizations in the world that are incumbents fail to disrupt disruptors? Why do they constantly fall out of the Fortune 500 or the S&P 1000 or 100 time and time again when they have all the resources in the world? That's what led me to this innovation theory and research, which led me to technology, which led me to venture and now ultimately to startups. I have to say, I picked up another analogy between your helicopter startup experience and crypto, which is you have to build something much faster and you're trying to fly the plane while doing it. (laughs) (laughs) The crypto world moves very fast, which is, I think, a great segue into all the things you're building at syndicates. Where I really want to start is you talk all about democratizing finance effectively. You saw it in an incumbent institution. You saw how it's not serving so many people. You talk about this open fintech stack and you incubated a number of companies at IDEO in the crypto space. Why start with the world of DAOs and what you're doing at Syndicate as the place where you think you can have the most impact building fintech solutions or purpose-built solutions for somebody who wants to access finance communities, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe just a quick one-liner on what Syndicate is, which is we are building decentralized and Web3 native infrastructure for investing. And what that means is that it's radically more democratized and um, accessible and also effortless as compared to traditional infrastructure for specifically investing applications or uses. So that's the grounding and, and there's a lot to, to talk about there. But I think that's in helpful context behind what, what I'm about to tell you. There's two things that led to this. The first was in 2018, when I was at IDEO, I met uh, my co- now co-founder, Will. He and I, in 2018, were starting to research decentralized social networks. If you had been in crypto at that time, it was a really interesting time. It was actually the bottom of the crypto bear market post the 2017 ICO wave when everyone said that this thing was vaporware. And well before the DeFi wave in 2019 and 2020, which then everyone said, okay, yeah, this is actually a thing. So it was actually like the bottom of, you know, the bear market in crypto where there was a trough of disillusionment and we were researching decentralized social networks nonetheless. But one of the conclusions from all of that work at that time was actually one of the primary applications of a decentralized social network is for the purpose of investing. We came to that conclusion pretty early. We also came to the conclusion that it was too early for that idea to exist. And it was actually only after that 2019 and 2020 DeFi wave that a lot of the financial infrastructure for an idea like Syndicate on the investing side to exist was only possible as a result of more than two years plus of DeFi innovation. So that's number one. Number two is this passion and depth that I've built on the investing side. I honestly didn't appreciate investing for most of my life. I always thought it was kind of like the means to an end. It was never that interesting to me. What I've come to realize, having been an investor now uh, in crypto for eight years, basically, is that whether it's in crypto or otherwise, investing literally shapes the world uh, that we live in. 
it is effectively at the highest of levels allocating resources, whether financial or human capital, to things and teams that build the future that we will all live in. When I came to that realization, which honestly, maybe I'm just a little bit slow, but when I realized that several years ago, I was like, oh my God, investing builds this world, it shapes the world. But here's the other thing that I came to a realization around is that existing investing models that we've been living in today, they unfortunately reinforce inequality. I, I don't know how to say it in any other way than that, which is that it's not accessible in the same way like the banking system to lots of people in this world. And because it's not accessible, a lot of people don't participate and a lot of communities aren't involved. And because a lot of people and communities are not involved, they don't get to build this world that we all live in. And I think that that is not okay. It's, it's not sustainable. It's not the right thing. And something needs to change. What's going to change? Regulation needs to change. I think that there's been a lot of work over many decades on that. I'm long-term optimist that over multiple decades and generations that will improve. But in the meantime, while legislators are changing regulation over multiple generations and decades, there are people right now that need help, that need to be empowered in the same way that rich people are currently empowered. I think that the way to do that is through not just regulation, but fundamentally innovating the infrastructure and tool sets that could radically empower more people to be a part of the investing process and building the world that we live in. And what I mean by that is, if you dramatically reduce the cost and time and speed to utilize these and access these tools and employ these tools and empower more people, that will open up new things and possibilities that we thought were maybe generations away from now. A good example is actually some people think of us as the Web3 version or crypto version of AngelList. I think that misses the point. We oftentimes use an analogy that like we hope to do to investing what YouTube did to film and media. If you think about that, it wasn't about putting a feature length movie on YouTube, on the internet. Um, does that happen? Sure. And will we see venture funds on the blockchain, on Syndicate? Sure. But the actual impact in the world that YouTube had was creating 100x more content and creators that now make like cat videos and Charlie bit my finger and new types of content that previously couldn't exist before. I think that that's what we're doing. That's what will happen as a result of Syndicate and other things is that we will have new types of investors that are now a part of building this world that we live in. And it's not going to look like the VCs of today or yesterday. On that point, how much do you feel the heuristic of AngelList for Web3 or this is the next version of crowdfunding is helpful for people just starting to understand how this actually works? Because there will be a large number of people who, first of all, they have to get a crypto wallet to be able to participate. They have to have their own wallet address so that they can be part of a DAO and all of that. So how do you think about balancing those two worlds, given that you've been in those two worlds, but also recognize the power, as you just said, of how different this really is? It's a really hard issue. You're putting your finger on um, one of the most challenging things as an operator and product and company builder in, in this space. It's a daily 
question and, and challenge. My view on this and my co-founder too, we're ruthlessly pragmatic um, about things. We believe that the game-changing thing here is decentralized infrastructure and Web3. We start from first principles there, but we're ruthlessly pragmatic about how we implement things and take those technologies and implement them and also how these markets are going to develop. So what do I mean by that? Well, what you're referring to is analogies and like skeuomorphism in a way, right? Skeuomorphism in terms of taking something that people understand very well today and then mimicking that using a new technology or whatever. Honestly, skeuomorphism is both good and bad. It's bad from the standpoint that it limits people's thinking, limits the creativity, likely if taken to the extreme, limits the impact that things can have. It also limits how you might design things and actually underweighting the profound impact that something can have that is new. If you just place it into an old kind of skeuomorphic like frame of thinking. That said, because we're very pragmatic, skeuomorphism also cuts both ways. It can also be really helpful because when you're dealing with something as new as DAO technologies or Web3 or crypto technologies, it can sometimes be too much for a human being to wrap their head around what the hell is a DAO or a new technology. And so if you play it right, you can actually leverage skeuomorphism to your advantage to the adoption of new things while also still building for the future. That's how we think about it. So this product that we launched, which we call Web3 Investment Clubs, run as DAOs on Syndicate, which is run on Ethereum, which is run on a decentralized network. If we explain all of that, people wouldn't get it. But the thing is, it's both playing into, but also the product is designed this way. It's mapped into people's skeuomorphic understanding of an existing investing model today, which is the investment club. And what we've already seen since launching a little bit more than 24 hours ago is that that is actually helping uh, drive adoption because lately things have just been really crazy and fun for us because all these people are starting investment clubs with their friends and angel investor groups and, and families right now. So I actually want to go there because you're bringing up some fascinating points, which is we are living in a totally new world, yet some of the conceptual frameworks that you mentioned, investment clubs, even LLCs, which to some extent are connected to the concept of DAOs, but DAOs may be arguably a better version of LLCs, are things that have been done for quite some time. Investment clubs have existed for a long time, just in various forms. So how did you think about and learn from the kind of more traditional versions of what was created as you think about creating syndicate and building investment clubs on a decentralized network or DAOs instead of LLCs? I think uh, there's two ways to approach this. What's interesting about Web3 startups, syndicate is, is just one of many, is that in many cases, you're not just an application or building applications, but you're also building infrastructure for Web3 at the same time simultaneously. And actually our company, we've designed ourselves in that way in which we have an infrastructure and protocol team, and we also have the more tools applications team. That has a, a lot of different implications in terms of the impact, if you will, or mental model for building those two different components. So for example, on the infrastructure protocol side, 
we don't really need to bother ourselves with skeuomorphism because like infrastructure that is fundamentally also open source and is built on these new crypto and web three protocols, we can make them as generalizable as possible, basically make them completely unopinionated to anything, whether it's the application or even the regulatory or, or legal structures that may be required for that. That said, at the app more tool set and application layer where it's actually going to be applied in the world by people, businesses, or whatever, we do need to consider in particular legal pseudomorphism. Like how is this or not going to fit into existing legal frameworks? Because whether we like it or not, unfortunately, or fortunately, we can't replace the LLC, which has been around for hundreds of years or whatever tomorrow. And frankly, that's probably not even the right thing to do because LLCs are actually not that bad and other legal structures. But here's the rub is you don't want the skeuomorphic legal models to define the capabilities of the Web3 tool that is built on the protocol. And what, what do I mean by that? Well, then, for example, why are you even doing this? Why not just use AngelList or any other software as a service tool? Because AngelList is way better, frankly. It's way more capable. So the key thing here is super nuanced is understanding what are the fundamentally new capabilities that Web3 tools based on Web3 protocols can offer. And in particular, it's what's called often in the crypto space, composability. And if you did away with everything, you even have skeuomorphic legal models on top of a DAO, fine. And actually Syndicate helps DAOs do that. But if you still maintain the composability element of it, that tool will still be, we believe, world-changing. And that's how we've designed this first tool of investment club. So I want to unpack that a little bit. Composability is a word that's often used in crypto. What do you mean by that? Composability is built on the assumption that the system is open source, which means that anyone can interact with it, build on it, or whatever. And it's also, as a result of that open source nature, composable with and, and maybe a different word for it is interoperable with anything else that is also open source and composable. Let me give you an analogy in today's world. How would you, let's say, want to connect your bank account with your Charles Schwab account, with your PayPal account, with your Robinhood account, with your budgeting tool to be able to seamlessly move money instantly to go buy a stock turn it into, trade that into, put that into an IRA, and then have that automatically flow through to your budgeting tool. You can't. Why? Because those are not open source services. They are corporations that are permission gated, and they have gated APIs that only some people can build on and some services can build on or utilize and access. And um, to integrate those APIs, they're all custom they take months to get approved and they oftentimes don't even work. They're like totally broken. So in Web3, specifically in finance, but other applications of Web3 too, that is immediately out of the box with every single service or application that is built in Web3. They are day one composable and interoperable with anything that is built in Web3. And so what does that mean? You can create a service like Syndicate 
and, and specifically our first product and, and tool and investment club, but let's say anything. And that thing is immediately interoperable with anything in Web3. So there's two things about that. From the end user perspective or customer perspective, they can use a syndicate and then they can access and utilize with that syndicate DAO the thousands of other applications that are already built in Web3 and snap that into our investment club tool. And that makes that investment club tool exponentially more capable already than Web2 systems that will rely on APIs because people can just do whatever they want with it. So that's one. And then the second thing really quick is that because of that composability and interoperability, this is the thing that most people miss, is that you can actually build things on top of those other things. And that's the crazy part that people don't, I don't think, fully grok. So people who are used to traditional financial services, pipes and plumbing and, and the processes might ask, well, okay, what about things like KYC and AML? That ends up being part of the process. And yes, I know there's the API piece as well, but when listening to you explain, oh, it's it's significantly easier when you're able to just add in all the composable pieces or interoperable pieces of Web3, you maybe don't need some of the burdensome tech debt or aspects like KYC. How do you do things with Syndicate like solve for KYC? So I'll take a more kind of broad philosophical um, approach to this. When I was at Citigroup, there were people during that time in the banking sector constantly asking, how do we KYC and AML the Bitcoin network? And the answer is you can't. <laughs> how would you KYC the internet? You, you cannot. You cannot <laughs> KYC the emails and packages that are going across the internet on a global basis every single second. What you can do though, is you can KYC the endpoints and you can AML the endpoints. And that is what the regulatory approach has been to Bitcoin for many, many years now. And that's the approach also that will be and is being applied in Web3. So what does that mean? Well, that means that the user ultimately need to use these tools in, in a responsible way. And if number one, for certain types of services, this is actually not really relevant to syndicate at the moment, but for certain types of services that they would actually have to embed KYC into the endpoints, which are the interfaces into these networks, these decentralized networks, you are starting to see startups that um, are starting to address this issue. There's this startup called Barada, which is actually really cool. What they do is uh, they enable a little code snippet to be put into a Web3 application, and then users can natively KYC themselves. And then once they do that, the system sends to that user, and it's in their wallet, a KYC NFT. And that KYC NFT is actually composable and then can be utilized by other decentralized applications to basically say that this person has been KYC. I think that those problems, they're not easy, but they're going to be solved. And so part of the question is what happens right now, given that they're not yet solved. And I think that there's two vectors for that, um, or, or three comments. One is that decentralized networks cannot and, and shouldn't be KYC. That's just, again, it's not technically possible or practically possible. Then it comes to the different services that live on top of these networks. They need to think very thoughtfully about the tools that they are building. And there's two ways. If they are, for example, there are points of centralization in terms of funds and stuff like that, 
then they need to take on that KYC burden. For example, Coinbase is a good example. That thing is built on Bitcoin and Ethereum's networks. So they have to build up that capability themselves. If, however, these tool sets are open, they're, they're open themselves, they're decentralized, they can be in themselves freely used. It is ultimately on the user to use these tools correctly. Our view on that is even at the tool level, because Syndicate is an open source tool, we can at least guide the users and design the open source tool in a way that enables users you know, of these tools that we're building to use them in the right way that protects themselves and doesn't get them in trouble. That is how we're doing it. We're also partnering up with other teams outside of us. We've teamed up with Latham Watkins on the legal documents for DAOs. We've also teamed up with this fintech called Doula, where it allows them to get bank accounts, file for a legal entity, file taxes, all this other stuff. We want to make all of these tools available so that for 99% of people who want to use this in the right way, they can do that and have that peace of mind. That's where all this is going. How are people thinking about using the DAO structures and specifically the investment clubs that you're creating? What are they creating? What type of people are they creating community for to be able to then invest or allocate capital on the internet effectively? We believe that the world of investing is on this multi-generational, multi-decade process of decentralization and democratization. This has been happening even before crypto and Web3, even with what Angelus pioneered a number of years ago, like syndicates and SPVs and rolling funds and stuff. It has led to this new market and an economy around angel investors, around solo capitalists and all this other stuff, which is incredible. But this has been happening before syndicate and before crypto. Now, what DAOs and crypto and Web3 do is it takes it to the logical extreme because now you have decentralized infrastructure that can enable, as I mentioned, fundamentally profoundly new things on top of it that are different than what can exist in the Web2. What we see is a world where investing will be more community-driven. If you compare that to the traditional investing model today, it is built on managers and people with expertise that either have the ability or resources to be able to build up that capability or run those capabilities, i.e. like investment funds. But in the future, and we're already starting to see this in Web3, it's going to be more community-based. And what that means is actually communities of users, communities of founders, which you also see in the Web2 space too. But communities of founders and builders and developers and other contributors who are actually going to be how network native technologies get supported in the early days and potentially even as they scale over time. On that point, what about the DAO structure makes that easier, more frictionless and more possible than it was before? Is it the fact that there are these wallet addresses that you can see what work people are doing, you can reward people, people can vote. What aspects make this so revolutionary in terms of engaging the community and enabling the community to participate and, and benefit from that? For anyone who has been in the VC space will know this very intimately, but I didn't know this when I first raised uh, a fund. It took me 18 months um, to raise the first venture capital fund. And it takes months to do what's called capital calls. You have people wire money into the fund's bank account. They all come in at different moments and it's hard to keep track of because nothing's transparent. 
with these banking uh, software platforms, taking the cost part out of it, just the human energy and time spent doing that is a waste of human capacity, to be honest. And what are DAOs and what do they do? Well, in my mind, DAOs are a social financial technology for coordinating human capital and financial capital on the internet seamlessly together natively on the internet. When you think of it and look at it that way, DAOs as a technology have an infinite number of applications in this world, whether it's social networks or whatever, but it also has uh, a very specific and in our opinion, thousand X improvement in the investing world. Because in that you know, scenario that I was mentioning of us taking 18 months to raise a fund, you can now create a DAO compliantly because we provide you with the tools to do that. You can create an investment club with your friends that you're already angel investing with together over decades, or maybe you're buying NFTs together because you like to collect art on these platforms, or maybe you're a builder or developer in the Web3 community and you're already supporting some of these decentralized uh, protocols that are building. It allows those groups to spin up an investment club as a DAO on Syndicate in 45 seconds with a single Ethereum transaction and four clicks. That is profound because what does that mean? I was talking about the YouTube analogy earlier. The big idea here is not that VC funds or even angels are going to turn their thing onto the blockchain. Will it reduce the cost structure by a lot? Yeah, probably. Will it introduce 100x new capabilities due to composability? Yeah. And that's where the traditional system will likely get disrupted. But the big picture idea here is actually the fact that now we can have potentially hundreds of thousands, millions, maybe one day billions of people that are not investors today that maybe don't even want to be investors but they are contributors to these technologies, to these startups, to these important projects, and they can now quote unquote invest really easily. And that's only because we've reduced the tool and, and effort and cost and time down by a thousand X in this case with Dow technology. Practically speaking, how would people actually participate? Would they just need a wallet and somebody who's the creator of that Dow just send them an address or give them an NFT that shows that they are part of this DAO and then they end up participating in the DAO. What's the process for people who end up participating in one of the syndicate investment clubs that gets created? It's really simple. You can go to syndicate.io and we even have a demo of the application that you can use and, and see what it looks like um, and feels like and exp the, the experiences. But at a high level, a couple things. So Web3 is still very nascent, like the internet was in the early 90s. And so a lot of the tools and infrastructure that would make things really simple, they're still being developed. People still need a crypto wallet in their browser like MetaMask. Ideally, they're actually using a hardware wallet like Ledger or something, and then logging into that wallet via MetaMask. But you need a crypto web wallet to be able to interact with decentralized Web3 tools like what Syndicate has built here. Here's the typical user journey. There's a group of friends on a WhatsApp group or a Telegram group or on an email thread. They're, let's say, angel investors in Silicon Valley or some somewhere else in the world. 
and they've been investing in, let's say, NFTs or some of these crypto you know, projects or startups out there. They're currently just doing that in their Telegram. They're like, hey, look at this new cool startup. Like we should invest together. That is effectively an investment club. I can talk about the legal structure for that, but basically that is an informal investment club. There are thousands, if not millions of those things out there on the internet today. And what do they do? Typically they just go individually, but oftentimes a lot of them are like, hey, what if we did this together? What if we just made it easier because we, we want to reduce transaction costs? We want to simplify the process. Now, what they can do is they can go to Syndicate. One of them logs into the application with their crypto wallet. They go through our creation steps, which is really simple. Like, what is the name of this thing? Stuff like that. They click create the investment club as a DAO on Syndicate. They confirm that transaction. And then in 45 seconds or less, the DAO is now there on Syndicate protocol. And what um, they can then do is then take that web page for the DAO that is on Syndicate and they can privately, not publicly, because if they were to do that publicly, that would expose that group to risk of securities violations or whatever. But they can privately DM that or email that to their friend group and say, hey, here's the DAO, please join it. The, the other members of that DAO, they click on that link. They now see the DAO's webpage or dashboard, if you will, and they can deposit into it, join it as a member, and start co-operating that investment club as a DAO and syndicate right then and there. And do people have to deposit crypto into the DAO account, or can they deposit fiat in terms of on-ramping people to this space? They could do fiat if they want to go through the issues of this is why we we're working with a startup called doula where once a DAO is created on syndicate they can attach a legal entity and also a bank account to it so hypothetically they could send money into the bank account convert money in the bank account into crypto dollars or whatever and then send that into the syndicate we will eventually partner or something like that to build fiat on and off ramps but for now people could do that it's just a lot more work the the fastest way would be to start from end to end fully in crypto. So start the investment club, deposit into the investment club with ETH or USDC or any other kind of ERC-20 token, since we're currently on Ethereum and, and other chains in the future, and then just run it completely natively in Web3. That's why most of our, our users, they're investing in Web3. They're people that are already in Web3 and they're investing in NFTs. We do have ones like we help CityDAO buy a piece of land in Wyoming. Some of our members were helping Constitution DAO try and buy the Constitution in the United States, which was you know pretty wild last year. It's possible. It's just that it's not the common, I guess, happy path. And how are you thinking about things like accredited investor status and what the DAO structures are investing into? So accreditation and accredited investor laws are really complicated globally. Every single country has different rules around this. So for users of syndicate, people must check with their own counsel for their specific circumstance in their specific jurisdiction and use case. There's no way that we're going to be able to understand all of that. If we did, that would be like a business or like a search engine-like kind of opportunity in and of itself. People need to figure it out um, on their own. That said, where we can, we are trying to protect people. For example, the U.S. regulation, where a lot of users are, 
is quite clear around accreditation laws. Whether we like it or not, those laws are not going anywhere and they will evolve, but they will evolve slowly. So what does that mean? A syndicate, that is you know, definitely shaping how we build things. For example, investment clubs in particular, as I mentioned, they've been around for thousands of years, but formally they've been in the US at least around since 1898. You can go to the sec.gov website and they have a page that is specific to in investment clubs. Now, the thing is that investment clubs have typically been like people that gather in community centers and restaurants and they talk about stock picking. They have not modernized the internet and they certainly have not modernized Web3, where now a lot of the investing assets are living native on the internet in Web3 as a result of you know NFTs and crypto. What we've effectively done is we've modernized the investment club construct to live natively on the internet and natively in Web3. What that means is if you look at the investment club rules, is if you follow those rules that are clearly outlined by the SEC, and we also you know, provide some documentation on our GitBook, if you follow those rules, investment clubs can have unaccredited people in them. That doesn't mean that an unaccredited or non-accredited person and therefore investment club can invest in any asset that they want because a lot of times those assets have requirements on who can and who cannot invest in those things. But as far as an investment club is concerned, even on the website, you can have unaccredited people as part of this. And therefore, that unaccredited investment club can invest in assets or opportunities that allow unaccredited investors to participate in those things. For example, I'm not saying Web3, because that's very confusing as to what you know is a security and what isn't. And we're figuring that out. But people can buy stocks like Going to your community center and talking about stock pickings, that's fine. And they can buy stocks off of Robinhood, Charles Schwab, E-Trade, whatever. And the same is true, therefore, about Web3. And that's the model that we've now you know, introduced to Web3. You're also hitting on a huge unlock for investors and a theme that I think has really opened things up for the world of investing, particularly alternative investing, which is fractionalization. Right now, through an investment club, people don't have to have tens of millions of dollars to be able to invest into a single asset that now a DAO that's created and spun up on Syndicate, people can invest into, or an NFT. There might be multi-million dollar NFTs out there that a DAO that's spun up on Syndicate can invest into, and people could contribute to that, which is, I think, a huge, huge unlock for people, to your point, democratizing investing. The question then becomes, though, with respect to things that are community-driven assets like board apes or crypto punks, where ownership of that asset also represents some level of participation in a community and unlocking the key to experiences within that community that may be velvet roped or closed doored on either in the physical world or in the digital world. How do you think about the DAO structure handling things like that where 10, 15, 20, 100 people may own one of these assets effectively. I don't think that we have a unique um, perspective on that, at least yet. I'm going to answer this in actually a non-syndicate capacity. I think when you look broadly into at least the Web3 ecosystem right now, that you have some really cool projects, for example, Party Bid and Party DAO, which allows group community-based purchases of NFTs together on the internet. You have other things like Fractional, which is this protocol for 
fractionalizing an NFT and other things where they are taking these potentially expensive assets like an NFT or something and increasing the number of people that can participate and, and, and be a part of that and own that. Right now, a lot of, in my view, outside in, is that a lot of those efforts are mostly focused on just the kind of activity of buying something together. What has not yet, uh, but I, I think will start to show up pretty soon, are the experience elements of it, as you mentioned, which is when potentially thousands of people own an NFT, how can something, whether it's an application or, or an experience, account for that and actually acknowledge that and, and invite that entire community in? I think that is really interesting. People are already working on it, really talented teams. I don't think Syndicate is, at least right now, for something like that. Yes, people in syndicates and investment clubs are uh, buying NFTs, but what they're doing is more about the supporting of that community or that network. It has a different purpose for group investing in something as opposed to group buying and fractionalization of something. Well, you're bringing up an interesting point too, which is these community-driven assets participation and passion are such important things. I'm wearing a t-shirt of a soccer team, a women's soccer team, Angel City. And I think sports teams are just one example of things that are, they may not be community owned, but they certainly have rabid community participation and fandom. And that's across sports. You're starting to see people think about that in the sports world. When you think about DAOs and the use cases for DAOs, what are some of the different use cases that you think will take shape due to platforms like Syndicate? I think obviously we're of the opinion that the investing space is one of the biggest areas where DAOs can make a difference. So that's what we're currently focused on. But I do think that more broadly, as I was mentioning, that this is a social financial technology that coordinates human beings and capital on the internet natively. That can be applied to a lot of things. And you're already starting to see all these different experiments and variations of DAOs. In 2016, when there was the DAO, there was only one DAO and it was the DAO. But these days, this new wave of application and implementation of this technology, there's actually many types of DAOs. The market hasn't yet gotten to a place where it knows how to talk about that or even necessarily understand that there are different DAO archetypes. For example, there's a protocol treasury DAO which is an open community DAO that is intended to govern a open source technology well. That is the purpose of that. There's other ones like nonprofit DAOs where they're actually an open community trying to govern the mission of a not-for-profit set of activities and resources. There's investing DAOs, which Syndicate is building for the purpose of investing. And then I think that there are other ones like organization DAOs, and those have different flavors. Some people refer to them as service DAOs, agency DAOs, et cetera. But I think what it is, is a DAO type where it is coordinating primarily human capital, not financial capital, to do things in a more distributed manner and provide value-creating activities and services. If you take a step back, when you look at those different things, we've seen a, a lot of action over the past few, few years around protocol treasury DAOs or these DAOs that are managing open source 
technologies that obviously has been taking off a lot around the DeFi space. But if, if you were to ask me where are DAOs going to have the biggest impact in the next three to five years, I think it is in the investing world. And I think it is in this future of work organization area. And then maybe as a subset to that, the creator economy. The reason is because this is a bit more philosophical around like why Web3 versus Web2. But the big idea here is that Web3 enables community ownership where Web2 did not. And that is why, in my opinion, and, and a lot of people's opinion, Web3 is fundamentally better for the world. It is what the world wants. And it is also more sustainable for the world and likely over the long run, even more competitive than Web2 as a result of the structural kind of economic model that is community ownership. And that will dramatically impact literally every single sector uh, of the economy. Yeah, it's fascinating to go back to what you said earlier about both Web 2 trying to port into Web 3 and then Web 3 just totally re-architecting the way that that human resources and financial resources are allocated in, in the world. But when I hear you say that, certainly you worked at a Web 2 company in City that was trying to think about disruption and probably in large part hired you to think about disruption in a sense. So when I hear this the one thing I think of is that the Web2 world has to port over, even if that may not totally work. And yes, we talked about skeuomorphism and that you can't really apply all of those things. And probably certain constructs from Web2 won't totally apply and companies may not be architected in the right way to, to be able to fully transition. But do you think that's going to happen too? When I listen to you, I'm like, well, it feels like a lot of the investment world can and should be ported over, at least parallel structured in a DAO structure on Syndicate. Do you think that the world of Web2, and for those who are in Web2 is the takeaway, hey, we need to start thinking about how to actually create these structures within the confines of what we're doing now so that we're ready for this seismic shift in the world? I think certain industries like probably healthcare, for example, and maybe some other areas as well, don't need to worry about this as much. But for the most part, I would say yes. If you're going to be working for the next 10 to 20 years or so, and you want to have a job and you want to have a, a growing job, I think you should be thinking about this. I've been thinking about this a lot. It took a lot of energy for me to basically go back then into Bitcoin, then into blockchain, and then into starting you know my own uh, company with other people natively in Web3. When you look historically, this is, again, my business management nerd history coming through here. The innovator's dilemma and stuff like that, look at the internet. It would be like saying, hey, you work at Barnes & Noble. Don't worry about it. It'll be 10 years before it disrupts that industry. Well, what did it do? It not only disrupted that even faster than we thought, but it fundamentally disrupted that. It's gone entirely. But what did it do? Some businesses like IBMs of the world, they're still there, but are they as important? Are they as exciting? Is it where actually all the future values is going? No. And so I guess my answer is the following, which is a technology as disruptive as Web3 is, like the internet was, is it's going to dramatically remap the ecosystem. It's going to take away certain roles. It's going to create entirely new roles. And the key thing for any business or person 
is to figure out what those new roles are and play there. So whether it's a centralized company or a decentralized network or something, more like a Web3 company, doesn't matter, but go do that thing. Don't build the helicopter, go work on drones. The second thing is, this is my conclusion after uh, many, many years sitting with this. And I came to this realization pretty early on, but one of the hardest things for an incumbent to deal with, and frankly, I only have one example of an incumbent successfully, at least in the last several decades, successfully doing this at scale and taking advantage of this, which is Netflix. But there are no big successful examples other than that, where an incumbent company has been able to successfully deal with not just a technical innovation, but a business model innovation that comes with it. And the internet did that. It was a technology innovation that also was paired with a business model innovation. And the same thing is true, whether people realize it or not, around Web3. Web3 is not just a technology innovation. It is actually, more importantly, a business model innovation. And here's the problem, is that a Web2 company, whether it's Citigroup or anything else for that matter, they can handle the technology. When I was at Citigroup, we built our own blockchains in a matter of, I mean, months, which is actually a pretty big deal uh, back then. These days, it wouldn't be a big deal, but we can handle the technology. The technology is actually not that hard. The hardest thing is how do you fundamentally disrupt your business model? That is a problem that time and time again, historically, through many smart people way beyond me, have not been able to consistently solve. At, at scale. And that's why I think that Web3 has a structural unfair advantage over Web2 for that reason almost alone. Well, it's a great full circle way to bring it back to your comment about Innovator's Dilemma being your favorite work and way to frame different technological innovations and why you're doing what you're doing. I always end this podcast asking everyone what their favorite or most interesting alternative investment is. So What's yours? Ooh, I mean, all my investments are alternative because they're you know, <laughs> a lot in Web3. Um, I like NFTs right now. And I, I like them in a way that I did not like them when they first came out multiple years ago, like in 2017, 18. Because I think that what they are getting right this time that wasn't figured out or experimented with is that they're actually starting to connect with people's identity. So what is an example of that? You mentioned CryptoPunks, for example, and many of these other things. I don't think they necessarily, maybe they did, but I don't think they knew that it was going to catch on like that and become an identity thing. But I think people have learned that. And now what you're seeing are NFT projects that are starting to communicate and connect with different communities and, and, and the identities and the emotional connection of them. So let me give you an example. I love this project called Crypto Covens. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, same. Yeah, yeah. And, and if you know what Crypto Coven is, it's this NFT collection. They're illustrations, but all women witches. And, and they're all different types. They're wearing different things of different colors. And I love it for a couple reasons. When I entered the crypto space in 2014 and for the you know following years and even to this day, there have not been enough women in this space. And I've lamented that fact and frankly, that's broadly true about the technology space. But I've been bothered by that because 
we need more women and more uh, voices in more communities that are not like what they are today to be a part of designing these systems to reach as many people in the world as possible. I've been thinking deeply about why is it that it hasn't been that way or what can we do to improve it? And I think part of it is because, number one, it hasn't been as welcoming as it could be. But number two is that in, in a very rational way, people don't see themselves in it. What I love about Crypto Coven, and there's other ones like World of Women, is that it is for them and it is for people, even allies, like people like myself, who identify with that and want to be a part of that and support that. And it's not financial. It's actually more emotional and more, more about identity. I think that crypto code, I don't actually check because I don't even care, but I, I do think that like the price of it has gone up because people are gravitating towards it. And so that's actually my best investment. I think it's doing well, but it's doing well because it's doing something important. Those are the best alternative investments that I make, whether it's like Goldfinch, you know, which is helping improve financial access to people over the world using their lending protocol. It's when a project even as simple as an NFT collection, is doing something important in society. That is one that, that I'm all about. Yeah, I love Coven's too. And, and for a similar reason, actually have some as well, because I think it's the idea of what they're trying to do with the mission and then the community around it that makes it so powerful. But I think what's fascinating about what you just said is that once again, you tied it all together with a line that, that you said that I love, which is investing literally shapes the world we live in. And that's exactly what you're doing with the alternative investments you're making, but also with Syndicate enabling people to do that. So thanks for all the amazing work that you're doing in the crypto world. And thanks for coming on the, the All Goes Mainstream podcast. No problem. And, and actually one final thing, my last thing that I want to say is more than 50% of the DAOs that we've been working with in private beta, and we didn't even really know this um, until we took a step back, more than 50% of them are either women-led or all-women DAOs. And wow. um, that was not necessarily, we had to set that number or anything. But I think the point here is that this is what happens when you create technologies that empower people that deserve it the most, is they will come and build it with you and use it in the way that it, it was intended to help the people that need it the most. So really, really excited for that and, and all these other Web3 projects that I think are similarly opening access to people that haven't been able to access things for potentially generations. This is awesome to hear and all the more reason why Syndicate needs to exist in the world. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Ian. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Stigmore and at GoesAlt. Thanks a lot and have a great day. We're going